You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. I hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 16. Sorry, 17. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Get your device, or as Dolan mentioned earlier, there is a pew Bible, and if you need that, feel free to use it. The scripture will also be on the screen. But we'll continue our journey through Acts, from Acts 17, starting in verse 1 through verse 15. Um, If you were with us, or you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that Acts 16 had quite uh, uh, the narrative. Um, We finished up Acts 16 with with Paul and Silas being freed from prison uh, by that uh, miraculous earthquake uh, that, that actually, ironically, wasn't really primarily about their freedom as much as it was about the salvation of this Roman jailer who came to know the Lord through that event, and his household did as well. There's this beautiful scene at the end of Acts chapter 16 where the jailer, who more than likely caused many of the wounds that were on Paul and Silas at this time, washed their wounds and gather around the table in the jailer's house and celebrate the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it appears that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, the Apostle Luke, stays in Philippi, which is where all of that went down in Acts 16, and and pastors, potentially, this newly formed church. Well, Paul and Silas move on towards Thessalonica. And so this morning, what we'll do, like we always do, we're going to talk through these a section at a time. However, um, there are some applications that we're going to really zero in on in these two sections of Acts chapter 17. And, and I want to just give you a, a heads up, like out of the gate, like what we see in Acts 17 is incredibly, and it all is, to be honest, but it's incredibly relevant for what we do on Sunday mornings. Um, it's incredibly relevant for what we do as Covenant Church, not just in this room two times on Sunday mornings, but in every room that has believers gathering in it on a Sunday, or on a Wednesday, or on a Thursday night, or on a Thursday morning, or on a Monday night. By the way, if you want to get involved in some of those groups, let us know. All that information is on our website. But if you wonder why we do what we do, or you wonder what is the primary message of the Christian church, we're going to see it today. Okay, So there's going to be an expectation that we see first from the pulpit, which means you guys should have an expectation when you hear the Word of God preached and taught. But then there's also an expectation from the pew that we will see by way of application when we look closely at the result or the response of the Berean Christians to the preaching of Paul. And so look down with me in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now they, that's Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I want to show you a map quickly for those of you that are more visual learners to help you see. On your left, you'll see Philippi up there at the top. That's where Acts chapter 16 ended. Well, they made their way through Apollonia and Amphipolis on their way to Thessalonica. Now, these two cities... Apollonius and Epiphilus were more like overnight stays for Paul and Silas. Now you might well go, well, hey, what about us country folk, right? What about these rural people? Like they need Jesus too. And it wasn't that that wasn't the case. That certainly was the case. But Paul's strategy was to make it to the big city locations because that's where the people were. Thessalonica is an important link between the rich Macedonian agricultural region, which he's been in, 
and land and sea trade routes. And so Paul seems to view Thessalonica as a strategic center from which to preach the gospel. And we see this over and over in Paul's missionary journeys. This is the logic that he uses. Plant a church in the large city, and then the newly formed church spreads the gospel to the surrounding areas. In fact, I want to show you in Paul's first letter back to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 8. He says this about them. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And so Paul is acknowledging what these Thessalonians did once he brought them the gospel and established elders in the church. Then it was the church's responsibility to take that gospel to the surrounding areas. Synagogues were Paul's preference. I I really think that has to do with a few things. One, that's his area of expertise. Um, Like some believe that Paul was the most well-trained Jew of his day. And so he was an expert in the Old Testament scriptures, but now that he's born again, now that he's been saved by Jesus Christ, he's not only an expert in the Old Testament scriptures, but he's now an expert, as we'll see, in communicating how the Old Testament scriptures were all about Jesus. And so he goes to the synagogue, because I think in Paul's mind, he's like, this should be low-hanging fruit. I'm familiar with the synagogue. I, like, uh, the Savior came from the Jews. Salvation came first to the Jews, came from the Jews. And so he started in the synagogues, as we'll see today on two different occasions. And we've already seen in our journey through Acts, many of the Jews were jealous of Paul and did not want to hear him preaching the gospel. So let's move on in verses 2 and 3. And it says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned, if you underline or highlight, you might want to get that, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, underline explaining, explaining and proving, get proving, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, like, this is, this is his message. This is the thesis statement of Paul's preaching, and brothers and sisters and friends, of Christian preaching. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Paul had landed three Sabbath gigs, if you will, in a row in this synagogue. As I mentioned, I think that's probably because of his credentials. But but what Paul does in the synagogue, particularly how Paul handles the Scripture in the synagogue, I think helps us immensely in understanding how the church is meant to function, how the church is meant to handle the Word of God, what church planting is supposed to be about and look like, what Christian mission is supposed to be about and look like, and and it's all centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's slow down and, and let's look a little closer at what Paul does and how Paul handles Scripture. And this is the expectation that you should have from any and every pulpit. Okay, so, so this is you holding me accountable. This is you holding whoever stands on this stage behind this pulpit fully accountable because your expectations should never be less than what we are about to talk about. First, Paul reasoned with the Scriptures. This word reason means that his argument was underpinned or supported with logic or good sense. And so I think the important thing to see here, at least initially, is that this isn't rocket science. 
There's a common sense factor, especially in the synagogue. As Paul and many of those in the synagogue were very familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul is reasoning and his support for this new logic that he has in the Gospel it, it is the Old Testament. And so he's using the Scriptures to support what he's communicating, and it's that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Jesus himself did this in Luke 24. Um, you might be familiar with the road to Emmaus story where these two disciples are walking and uh, the resurrected Lord approaches them and this is how the conversation ends. And this is speaking of what Jesus said. And He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Now listen to verse 27. And He, I'm sorry, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so this is exactly what Christ himself did in communicating and reasoning, or maybe a better word for this is interpreting what the Old Testament was all about. Or who it was all about. And it was about Jesus. And so he reasons from the scriptures. Second, Paul explained the Scriptures. And so explaining is a simple definition. It means to make something clear or intelligible that wasn't initially obvious. And so this looks like a little bit more legwork on the part of the teacher or the preacher or the pastor or whatever's happening. And it means that Paul would talk about definitions. Like, what does the word mean? What does this sentence mean? What's the context of the statement or the doctrine that is being taught? What's the history around it? Like that's what it means to explain. It's to communicate it in a way that helps people understand what is being taught. And so think about Isaiah 53 that we read during communion. They were very familiar with Isaiah 53. One of the biggest hang-ups for the Jews was that this Messiah, Christ, uh, the Christ, that he suffered. That he lived a humble life. That he didn't exhibit, at least in the way that they wanted him to, any sort of physical, earthly power or authority. And so Paul would explain with Isaiah 53 that 700 years before the Christ came, Isaiah said he was despised and rejected. That there would be nothing about him that would attract you with your human eyes. He would be stricken. We would not esteem him. And Paul would give definitions of what that means as he explained the scriptures. So he reasoned with the scriptures. He explained or interpreted the scriptures or what the text means. The third thing we see is that Paul proved the scriptures were about Jesus. To prove is to give evidence. To prove is to give evidence. And, and, and so this is what Paul is doing as he reasons, as he explains, and now he's to the proving. He's, he's setting the life and ministry and person and work of Jesus Christ side by side with the Old Testament. And he's saying, all of this, it's about Him. Every single bull and lamb and sacrifice. Every drop of blood that was shed for hundreds of years was pointing to the day that the ultimate true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, would come and shed His blood and there would be no more requirement 
of sacrifice. And so he proved that everything, the whole thing, it's about Jesus Christ. So he reasoned, he explained, he proved. Next, Paul uses persuasion, not coercion. If if you want to look down, I didn't read it yet, but in verse 4, it says, and some of them were persuaded. I love that word. Because it could say, like, some of them were coerced, or some of them were forced to believe. But that's not the way that, that Paul works. And friends, like, that's not the way the Lord works. The Lord works from the heart. The Lord works from the inside out. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, this is the Apostle Peter writing about what it means to be a pastor. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now listen, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I had somebody say to me one time, do you not have a problem with the fact that you try to manipulate people for a living? I was like, well, I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, that's an interesting way to say it. But persuasion is persuasion. But this persuasion is not for personal gain. The persuasion of the preacher in regards to the gospel is because the preacher wholeheartedly believes what he's preaching is true. And that every person that he locks eyes with is a soul. And that soul is going to spend eternity either with Christ or without Christ. That soul's sins are going to be paid for either by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago at Calvary or on their back. And so that's the motivation for persuasion. That's the motivation for Paul to go into these synagogues and try to reason with them and teach them and prove to them that Jesus is the Christ because that is the factor. Like that's the X factor of this whole thing, of our whole existence and of this whole message. That if you don't trust in Jesus... If you don't trust in Jesus, your sins remain on you. And so this this topic and and this message has eternal implications. And so that persuasion, it's not a coercion. I know the old adage of, you know, beat them over the head with the Bible. And some of you, some of us maybe have stories of where we feel like we've been coerced by Christian leaders. And, 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 you know, maybe that's the case. Or some of you parents, you might be like me and and fight that temptation of, no, I'm pretty sure I'm going to use coercion right here. You know what I mean? Like, I am going to force you um, to... you know, to do this in the first service, I said that um, I've done my share of beating as a dad. And I was like, okay, social workers, I meant like I meant in the context of over the head with the Bible, like, you know, like metaphor anyway. So. Um, so if, if I don't show up next week, that's what happened. I, I told them most of my kids are here. They can be interviewed, whatever you need to do. I, I, like my point is, is, is that like the tone. The, the tone of the Christian message, it's a plea. We are trying to persuade. We are trying to reason with Scriptures. We are trying to present the gospel of Jesus Christ in hopes that that heart is changed. And friends, this is what should make up a preaching ministry. And and I know this... This next statement is, is it's bold, 
Um, I, I don't you know, mean to cause any issues with anybody, but I want to be clear. I don't consider it a church if the pulpit doesn't handle the Word of God. I just don't, because not because it's what I think, but because clearly in Scripture, the Christian message and Christian ministry and Christian preaching is about the reasoning with the Scriptures, the explanation of the Scriptures, the proving of the Scriptures, and a tone of persuasion so that people may come to know Jesus Christ. Like, what else do we have? What else are we doing? Seriously. Do you want 12 steps to the better you? I hope you never get it from this stage. I hope you get Jesus. And I hope you hear the gospel week in and week out regardless. I hope your kids hear the gospel from the college students to the youth to the clubhouse to clubhouse junior to the threes and fours to the toddlers. The babies have scripture read over them because that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we are about. The Christian message is clear or it should be. And it doesn't come from anywhere else but right here. In the inspired living Word of God. That's why we preach verse by verse. Because what this does, when you preach verse by verse, Scripture is the ultimate authority. Scripture is the ultimate content. Scripture guides the thinking. Scripture guides the preaching. Scripture guides the applying. I don't want to step on toes, but I might. Christian counseling should be synonymous with biblical counseling. I'm not saying for those of you, like, like there, there is a reality of counseling and counselors that is beyond Scripture, and I appreciate that, and I'm not, like, I support that, but any counseling that comes from within the church has the Bible open. Because it, it teaches and exposes and shows us what all of our greatest problem is and who our greatest need is. Preaching and worship services are not, friends, they're not about entertainment. Okay? Um, you know, there's, there's a temptation for us, especially in our entertainment-driven age. I'm talking to most of, like, say, 30 and under here. Like entertainment driven age that some, well, if we just preach verse by verse through the Bible, that's just going to be boring. You know what? It might be for you. It might be. But when God Himself births in your heart a hunger and a desire for His Word, you can't eat enough, you can't get enough. And there's nothing more exhilarating or exciting than to hear from the living God through His Word. And so entertainment in churches that resort to entertainment, and that's not to say that we don't use age-appropriate songs and games and illustrations and those kind of things. But a church that is wholly committed to entertainment is a church that doesn't have worshipers. Not of Christ, at least. The way that Christ is exalted and the way that Christ is worshipped is when He is the center of the singing, He's the center of the praying, He's the center of the reading, and He's the center of the preaching. And this should be your expectation from every single pulpit.
verses 4 through 9. It says, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, so there are a lot of people who have believed after this preaching. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, we've seen this already, and taking some wicked men of the rabble. Now, uh, the best way I know to communicate who these wicked men of the rabble are, so, so the jealous Jews have intentionally gone and sought out the wicked men of the rabble. Uh, think of like Antifa, like, like people who get riled up and like they're professional people who just stir things up and cause a ruckus. And they do it for money, they do it for personal gain. Well, these wicked men of the rabble were literally just kind of floating around these larger cities looking for drama or wanting to create drama. Well, now drama has found them as the Jews seek them out to cause this riot and to create an uproar. And that's exactly what they do. They formed a mob in the middle of verse 5, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, oh, I love this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Notice the wickedness of these Jews. Um, Luke's already let us know that their motivation is because they're jealous. They're jealous of what's happening because their world, as they confessed, is being flipped upside down. But what they say publicly is really this is more of a Roman problem because they're saying that there is a king greater than Caesar, and this king is Jesus. Again, doesn't this speak to the clarity of the preaching? Like even the people that hate it walk, walk away going, oh, it's definitely about Jesus. And they're definitely saying he's the king. They're definitely saying he's the Messiah. Again, like that's the importance. E even when these lines are drawn in the sand, which it's happening to us culturally right now, even when these lines are drawn in the sand, when our message is clear and it's concise and there's no gray and we unashamedly preach the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, even the world knows where we stand. We won't even have to tell them because we already have. And so, verse 8, and the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In verse 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Remember, this is their custom. This is, this is how Paul does things. This is his mission strategy. He goes to the synagogue first. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. If you underline or highlight, I love that phrase. We're going to come back to it. Receive the word with all eagerness. And this one as well. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Here come the Jews again. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also. They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So when these agitators come to Berea, they send Paul off by way of sea. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And we'll pick up next week in this narrative in the middle of 17. But I want to back up 
I want to back up and see what the expectation should be from the pew. So there's an expectation from the pulpit, and now there's an expectation from the pulpit to the pew, and we learn this from the Bereans. The first thing we see is the Bereans eagerly received the Scriptures. I want to ask you something. Don't answer out loud, but just kind of as quick as you can in the next 10 seconds, evaluate your heart. What is it that you're eager for? Just think about it. Not necessarily sinful, right? I can't wait for the fall festival. I am so eager for the fall festival. I'm hoping there's pumpkin stuff for days. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see my wife at the end of the day. I'm eager to see my kids. And so this eagerness isn't bad. But here's the point. Like This word speaks to something that we long for. And what we long for, you have to back up even further to go, well, why do I long for something? Why am I eager for something? Well, it has to do with our affections and our desires and what we love. And so these Berean Christians, or, or they are becoming Christians, these Bereans, what's interesting to me is that they are eager. They have a desire and affection to know more. And so they eagerly receive the message from Paul. They have a desire for the Word. What we love, we hope to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Somebody's kid just hit the panic button. But what we love, we hope to enjoy. More than that, what we love is also something that we're willing to sacrifice things in order to experience more of and to learn more about. I've had conversations over the years. Um, I actually was this guy at one time. Like I would say, look, I, I'm a Christian. I know that I'm saved. I believe in Jesus, but I just don't really have a desire for the Word. I've tried to read the Bible, and it just feels like I'm just looking at Greek literally, and I can't understand it. I can't read it, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and, and so let me just jump to like, like having, uh, by God's grace, come out of that. I've, I've talked with men, uh, particularly over the years, that say, like, I've tried to understand it. Like, I've tried to read it, and I just, I, I just don't really have the desire to it. Like, I'm a Christian, but like, like, it's just too difficult for me to understand. And I'm looking at this dude, and I glance down at his hands. First off, they're like ping pong paddles with hot dogs. Like, they're massive hands. They, he's got grease all around his fingernails. And I'm like, dude, you're a genius. What do you mean you're not smart enough? You are a diesel mechanic. Put me under that hood. Watch what happens. You know what will happen? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nobody will be happy with what I do because I won't even know where to start. How did you come to know that? I wanted to. Why did you want to do that? I enjoy it. Exactly. Or... Man, I just can't understand it. I don't know how. Hey, but I can tell you how to go. I, I can tell you the exact temperature that the air, the barometric pressure, and the water temperature is supposed to be. And I can tell you exactly what lure to use. And I can read this depth finder that was made by NASA. But I can't. But I'm not smart enough to understand the scriptures. Now, how'd you learn how to fish that good? I love it. All right. Exactly. This eagerness comes out of a desire, and what we love, we hope to enjoy. And the only way we enjoy things is to get to know them and to understand them more and to be intentional about being 
with those things and about those things, so much so that you listen to podcasts, you listen to music, you, li- like you read books. I mean, like diesel mechanics, like reading books. They wouldn't touch another book, but they'll read a book about something they're excited about. And so these Bereans were, they were excited about the Word. But I don't want you to panic. I don't want you to panic and go, I don't, I don't know how to make myself love something. I don't remember who wrote that country song, You Can't Make a Heart Love Somebody, but they ain't wrong. You can't force desire. And, and, and so how did I personally come out of this? A God-breathed miracle into my heart. But the irony is, the irony is, is that this desire comes from a discipline to keep this book open. And at, while it's open, God, please help me understand this. Lord, give me a desire for this. Lord, I want to understand it. And there is a commitment to that because there is a desire and an eagerness to know Him more. And so these Bereans received the Scriptures eagerly. Second, the Bereans examined the Scriptures. And, and I... I, I I think this is simple. This is very simple. But how, like, how do you come to know your spouse? By getting to know them, right? And so, how, like, look, this is relationship 101. If you guys don't know the answer to this, we may be in trouble. Okay? But that's, that's what you do. You, you spend time with them. You ask questions. You, uh, like, like, you get to know each other. And, and like, Scripture's no different what, what can be frustrating for us is we feel so intimidated by Scripture, but we keep it over here and we don't, by faith, go to Scripture, open Scripture, ask God to help us understand it while we read it. It would literally be like saying, well, I just don't know my spouse very well. And I'm like, well, y'all spending time together? No. Y'all ever go on dates? Mm-mm. One time. Well, we do text. That doesn't count. But you see what I mean? Like, like these Bereans, they eagerly receive the word and then they examine the scriptures and, and it's manifest itself in this way. And I love this. And this is an expectation from the pulpit to the pew is that they didn't take Paul's word for it. They examined the scriptures for themselves. Look, this idea and this reality was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Because the Roman Catholic Church was the church at the time preached in Latin, nobody could understand it, and it's exactly the way they wanted it. But then these reformers come along, and and again, at the heart of that was to get Scripture in everyone's hands because every single person that has trusted Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit and has the ability, has the ability as their great high priest being Jesus Himself to examine and learn and explain and understand the Scriptures. You don't have to be, you're not supposed to be dependent on me. There is an expectation that you, as an individual and as families, open the word and examine it for yourself. Lastly, the Bereans believed the scripture. So again, you see they received it, they examined it, and they believe it. Again, Like this is such a beautiful picture of how the church is designed to function. From the first part, we saw Paul with Scripture. He reasons, he explains, he proves, he persuades using Scripture. And then the fruit of that is they receive it, they examine it, and they believe. Like That's the way it's supposed to work. So the Bereans believed the Scriptures. that They welcomed 
what the Word said. Belief in Scripture is more than an intellectual assent or acknowledgement. Some of you are really, really, really book smart. Some of you, notice I said you, not us. Some of you can read something and your mind's like a steel trap. You got it right there. And you can write about it. That's so frustrating. And you can just write about it. Like, just, like it's nothing. Christian discipleship is not stacking knowledge on top of knowledge on top of knowledge. Christian doctrine is meant to drive devotion, obedience, application. And so it's not just a zeal for more knowledge, and it's not just a zeal for devotion. Being zealous is not the key. Because there are people who are devoted, but there's no doctrine. And there are people, like on this camp, that, that say, hey, uh, Christianity is all about just serving, 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 serving. And they would say, well, doctrine's just divisive. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It was that way in Jesus' day. It was that way in the first century. But the Christian church and, the, and like Christian individuals were meant to be doctrinally sound, supported, underpinned by true Christian doctrine, which drives the devotion. They're not mutually exclusive, they're the same. And so a true understanding of doctrine is devotion. It's application. It's, it's obedience. And so when the Word is rightly preached, people learn about Jesus. When the Word is rightly preached, brothers and sisters, people are saved. When the Word is rightly preached and taught, souls are strengthened. Faith in Christ, not faith in our faith, but faith in Christ is strengthened. There will come a time in our lives if we live long enough that the only thing we have to hold on to are the promises that are found right here. Everything else will be shifting sand. Everything else will be unstable. It could be our health. It could be our job. It could be anything. And so we as the church must be committed. You should have an expectation of me and whoever's up here to preach Christ and to preach Scripture. And I should have an expectation of you to examine the Scriptures yourself, to be eager and ask God for an eagerness to receive his word, but then also that we all together believe His Word and apply His Word and don't just store these doctrines in our head, but let these doctrines find themselves manifested through our hands and through our feet and through our mouths as we continue to live out this life that God has given us. Did you notice at the end of verse 6, I, I made a comment about the phrase, but like, like the accusation is, these men have flipped the world what? Upside down. Let it be said of us. That we preach in a way. To listen in a way. That we as Covenant Church live in such a way. That this community. This state. This country. And maybe by God's grace this world. Is flipped upside down. All for the praise and the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. 
If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.